place ourselves beneath that cross. For the next few minutes, let's sit and ponder as our Savior breathes his last. Let's stop everything else we are prone to think about in these minutes and fix our eyes on our Lord as he gives his life as a ransom for many. I invite you to join me in Mark 15. There's much we could speak of as we look upon our Lord on a cross, suffering and dying for us, but we're going to look at just one verse in the section that Kevin read earlier in Mark 15. As Jesus breathes his last, gives up his spirit in death, there are recorded in Mark and in other gospel accounts several supernatural responses. Supernatural witnesses to the uniqueness of this moment. Evidences from the very throne of God that what happened here was not a normal death. That the one who died was not a normal man. And that what was accomplished in his death had eternal consequence. There was darkness over all the land for three hours, anticipating and carrying through to Jesus' last breath. There's a tremendous earthquake in the region to which rocks split in half. In connection to that earthquake, there are saints who are dead in the tomb, who are raised to life and enter Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus. And the veil in the temple is torn in in two from top to bottom. All of these act as supernatural witnesses declaring that what happened here is the most glorious hour of human history. These are God's unmistakable flares burning in the night sky, drawing our attention to the cross work of our Lord. Look again at the words of Mark 15, starting in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. If you've been like me this week, you've been reading in the gospel records, just getting your mind acclimated again to the story of our Lord's crucifixion, leading from Friday night to Sunday morning, reading soon of his resurrection. It's easy as you're reading through the gospel record. There's a lot here, and you could come to a verse like 38 and just quickly move past it. Oh, that's neat. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and moved to the next thing in the statement of the centurion, which often catches our gaze. I think it behooves us tonight as we sit beneath the cross of Jesus to consider this amazing act, this supernatural act of God to validate and verify the work of Jesus on the cross. Let me remind you what's happening here. These are things you know, but I will remind you. Jesus is is suffering and dying on a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem. He is taken outside the camp, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. And he suffers and dies as a criminal on a hill that's elevated above a main thoroughfare so others can see him in his shame and mock him as they pass by. It's a place that by its name is a place of shame. It's called the place of the skull. It's the place you go to die. You don't leave there alive. You leave there dead. If you were to look at this hill, Golgotha, from the right angle, you would see behind Golgotha rising in the landscape beyond the city of Jerusalem. And in particular, you would see 
at the most prominent point of that landscape, the temple, Herod's temple, the centerpiece of the city of Jerusalem. It was a great protruding structure of Jerusalem's skyline. It was the the central draw of the Jews to this city. They would pilgrimage from around the world and come to Jerusalem because the temple was there. And at the temple, God dwelt among men. His manifest presence on earth was in that temple. And they would come to worship their God in that temple at specific times of the year. And there was no more grand or glorious time of the year for the Jews gathering in Jerusalem than this time, the Passover feast. They were remembering and rehearsing all that God had done for them and rescuing them from the grip of Egypt, bringing them out of their slavery and setting them into the promised land. They, especially on this day, on this Friday, are remembering the the sacrifice that they were instructed by God to give the shed blood wiped on the doorpost of their house so that the angel would pass over and no one in their home would die. They were instructed by God to continue that practice, remembering that it was through the shedding of blood that they would have the atonement of their sins. They would be covered in their guilt by the shed blood of an innocent lamb. As they bring these spotless lambs for their family as an offering for the atonement of their sins, they bring them to this temple in the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather in Jerusalem, millions of people in Jerusalem proper, tens of thousands of lambs being brought to be slaughtered, for their blood to be collected and spritzed on the altar, the bronze altar, the fat to be burned as a a blessing to the Lord, the meat of the animal to be taken by the offerers back to their home and used as the main part of their Passover meal. This is all happening on this Friday. They remember and rejoice in God's saving them from slavery. According to tradition and history, 3 p.m. in the afternoon on this Friday was the height of this sacrificing of lambs in the temple courtyard. And it was at this divinely appointed hour that the shadow would give way to the substance. It was at that moment in Mark 15 that the the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God completed His perfect sacrifice for sinners for all of eternity. As the temple was filled with worshipers busy about their sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God suffered and died outside the camp. And as he did, something show-stopping happened at the temple, something that would have made everyone stop what they were doing and gasp and wonder what in the world was happening. And that something was the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. The temple complex was a massive structure. It dominated the landscape of Jerusalem. Its overall footprint was over 1.5 million square feet. This is a massive piece of ground. It was designed as intended by God to have different courts which marked off who could go to a certain level of closeness to God. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles where anyone could be in the vicinity of the temple. But if you were not a Jew who was ritually clean, you could not enter past that point. 
into the temple or into the courtyard of women. If you did, there were signs posted saying if you were unclean or you were not of Jewish blood you, and you entered, you took your life into your own hands. And if you died, it was your fault. And if they found out, you would die. It would be a capital punishment offense. As you then went into the court of women where women, Jewish men and women could gather, that led to the temple courts, the one right in front of the main temple structure. It was here that they offered their lambs and had the, the bronze altar of offering to the Lord. And in front of them, as they looked at the temple, they would see a curtain lavishly presented in Babylonian tapestry, and behind that was the, the holy place. Only one family of priests could enter into the holy place. And them only at their appointed hour as assigned by God through the casting of lots. Think of Zechariah in the gospel records appointed by God for this hour to go in to the holy place. They would go in daily and offer sacrifices and work the the lamp and trim it and prepare it and burn it before the Lord. But only once a day. And then beyond the holy place was the most holy place covered by a veil, by a massive curtain. And in there was the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of our Lord, covered by the cherubim statues covering the mercy seat. The most holy place was entered only one time a year by only one man, the most holy of men, the high priest, the the priest of priests the one appointed through blood and through God's appointment. Entering in, he had to wash specifically and uniquely for that moment. He had to burn incense as he went into the most holy place to cover his eyes with the smoke so that he would not see the fullness of God. He had a rope tied around his ankle so that in case there were any iniquities in him by which he was then consumed by the presence of God, they could pull him out. He went in to spritz blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and he did this one time a year on a specific day at a specific time, the Day of Atonement. The most holy place is walled in on three sides with the front of it covered by this massive tapestry, a curtain estimated to be 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches What is God communicating to his people by this structure? What is he intending for all to know and understand about his holiness and his glory through how he's designed the temple to operate? He is making clear that his holiness will consume sinners if there is not a barrier. It's an act of his mercy to keep them from dying in his presence. The veil was veiling them from the glorious holiness of God in his dwelling place on earth, but it was also protecting his people from being consumed and from polluting his purity. And yet here we are on the busiest day of the year, on the temple grounds, the day of Passover sacrifice, and it all comes crashing down. The veil is rent in two from top, to bottom. This is an obvious expression of divine power. It's assumed by Mark and 
assumed by every reader who reads it with faith, that this is an act of God. God has done this tearing of the veil from top to bottom. I want you to see five things about this tearing of the curtain. I want you to see the divine initiative. The divine initiative. This is God's work. This is from heaven to earth type of stuff. This is not earth to heaven and then back to earth type of stuff. This is, this is God's idea, God's doing, God's accomplishment. It's God's initiative. It's his work through and through. No one thought to ever ask God to remove the veil because they knew they would be consumed. No one went about the task of, of tearing the veil and exposing the glory of God. No one thought in a human way to remove this barrier. This curtain hung by God's command and was taken down by God's power. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been veiled from mankind. He walked and talked in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, and they knew his fellowship and his fullness of joy in an unpolluted earth. After their sin and rebellion against God, there was a veiling of God. There was a, a removal of this manifest presence on earth. And, and when that manifest presence came to God's people, it was always in a veiled form. Namely, and specifically the tabernacle, all throughout the wilderness wanderings of God's people, then to the temple, always behind veils, always behind tents, always away from the view of his people. He hid his glory so as to not consume them in his holiness. But now, through a supernatural act, God opens the way through one man, through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, we no longer need the, the holiest of men among us to put on the, the holiest of clothes we can muster up to go in on the holiest of days into the holiest of places with the holiest of sacrifices to offer atonement for the wickedness of our sins. That no longer needs to happen because God, in his own initiative, has taken care of the problem. With the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus on his cross fully and finally accomplished. This is his work to save us. This is what Jonah uttered in the belly of the great fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah was there because of his own sinful rebellion against God. He was in the punishment and the, the merciful punishment of the Lord. He deserved far worse. He was still alive, yet alive in the belly of a fish. And there was no hope for Jonah but that God would intervene. And so he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. If I'm going to be saved from this, it will be because God saves me from this. So too with us. We cannot save ourselves. We've put ourselves in the pit of condemnation and judgment. We've imprisoned ourselves in our own rebellious wickedness against God. And there is no rescue that we can connive ourselves. There's no ladder of human achievement that will get us high enough to get us out of the pit of our own sinful condemnation. We are forever separated and kept away from a perfectly holy and sinless God. But God rescues us. Ephesians 2 verse 1 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's an awful pit. Dead in trespasses and sins, obeying our own wicked intense against God. The next verse does not say, but we found our way out. The next phrase is not, but man, but we, but someone else. No, it says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Beloved, see in the torn curtain in the temple at the moment of Jesus' death, divine initiative to save your soul. From top to bottom, from heaven to earth, he intervened through his son, communicating to you through the tearing of the curtain that he is able to save. See also the divine approval, this Tearing of the curtain makes known that God approves. That full payment for sin was made through the Son. That full redemption was purchased. That there is no condemnation left on those who are in Christ. That he drank the cup of God's wrath down to its final drop. That he emptied it completely in his cross work so that he could say on the cross himself, it is finished, to tell us I paid in full. God's wrath is satisfied, he was saying. And what we see in the tearing of the curtain in the temple is the first act of God the Father saying, I agree. This is God the Father saying, yes, it is. Paid in full, curtain rent. On Sunday morning, God will raise his son from the dead. This will be the greatest stamp of approval upon our Lord's finished work. It will be the eternal evidence that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save souls and conquer sin and death and hell. But before we get to Sunday morning, God does not leave you in doubt. At the very moment of the last breath of his son, he gives you evidence that he approves. That it was a full and complete sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's what the human high priest did once a year on the Day of Atonement. But not that way, but of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When God the Father rent the curtain in two from top to bottom, he is saying, this redemption is complete. It is satisfied. See also the divine judgment. This tearing of the curtain in the temple was an act of divine judgment. It's an act of divine initiative and of divine approval and also of divine judgment namely upon the Jewish religious system created by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the scribes 
these very religious leaders had, had seized this system of power in Jerusalem and, and the main tool of, of their authority structure was the temple itself. Their authority rested in their ability to control the temple grounds and, and to siphon off of all of the offerings brought a certain amount for themselves. To demand that offerings brought be of a certain kind and then they would just happen to be selling that exact animal on the temple grounds and it was at an escalated price because you couldn't bring that with you and be guaranteed that it would pass inspection. They had quite the racket going on. Not only that, but they had created man-made traditions and laws to barricade the law of God in their minds. As Jesus hung on the cross, gasping for every breath, suffering under the weight of our condemnation of our sin, these religious Jews passed by and mocked him. Look back at verse 29 of chapter 15. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Back in chapter 14, they repeated that idea that he had said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He had said that way back in John 2, early in his ministry. He was speaking, of course, of the temple of his own body. But now they deride him for that and say, you who would save others, have saved others, save yourself. You would destroy the temple and rebuild it. You can't even get off a cross. It's a shameful jab. It's a religious poke in the eye to the Son of God. It's a blasphemous statement from those who hate God and love themselves. The tearing of the curtain in the temple is God's answer to that shameful jab. That the temple will indeed be torn down and never rebuilt. The epicenter, you Sanhedrin, of of your false religion of your man-made system that you think is going to make you right with God, that is going to get torn down and never rebuilt. For it is no longer needed. In fact, the innermost part of your temple, the most sacred spot on this, your domain, has now been fully exposed in a scandalous way from top to bottom by God's own command. We see the Sanhedrin's grip on power over the hearts and worship of their people was dealt a death blow through the death of Christ. God's true people will no longer worship in a specific place, nor necessarily at a specific time, nor with specific liturgy, but rather they will worship in spirit and truth. This is guaranteed by Christ's death, and this is divine judgment on the Sanhedrin. See also the divine power, the divine power, the sheer height of this curtain and its thickness kept any mere human from accomplishing what God alone could do. To tear from top to bottom could only be done by obvious supernatural and divine power. But more than the physical side of it, more than the supernatural power entering in and literally tearing apart what man had put together, Consider the spiritual power at play in this divine act. So this tearing of a, a physical curtain is a spiritual display of, of great truth and great power. This death of Christ opens up the way 
to God with such power that it can never be closed. Notice that the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. It's, it's completely separated and, and set and spread apart. It's not just taken off of its hooks and laying on the ground so that you have to still step over it on your way into the most holy place. No, God by order that you could then pick up and put back in its place. No, God guaranteed by this divine act that it would forever be open. That the curtain would never be put back in that place. That physical reality is obviously symbolic of a more glorious spiritual one. Hebrews 10 verse 19, the writer says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The writer of Hebrews is, is doing the work for you here. He's helping you understand what's going on in Mark 15, 38. He's giving you the, the deeper spiritual reality of what's at stake in the curtain being rent. And he's showing you that through this, Christ has torn his body so that you now can enter in by his blood into the most holy of places. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The point of the death of Jesus under the weight of your own condemnation, the reason he who knew no sin became sin for you was so that you could be brought to God, was so that the most holy place could be opened to you that the veil could be torn and entrance could be guaranteed. Colossians 1, verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, this is divine power which takes you who were alienated from God and hostile in mind and dead in trespasses and sins, and he now reconciles you to God by his bloody death and presents you blameless and above reproach in him. Ephesians 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What were you going to do in that state? You had no hope and you were without God in the world. You were a stranger to the God of Israel. You were not a recipient of the promise. The text goes on, but now in Christ Jesus. This is a divine initiative coupled with divine power to bring about your salvation. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Beloved, this is God's glorious, powerful, divine work. It's his amazing power on display. Indeed, he is mighty to save so mighty that he alone can save. 
Lastly, see the divine invitation. See the divine invitation. It's wrapped up in this glorious display of God's power. He doesn't tear the physical symbol of the veil covering the most holy place to just say, you know what, I hope this works out somehow. The way's open, and that's it. No, he opens the way through the, the suffering of his son to let us know that there is a way. And to call us to that way, and, and a way to what? Well, a way to enter into his presence, to not be consumed because of our sins. A way to be washed and forever cleaned in Christ. A way to be rid of the guilt of our sins. A way to be saved from our condemnation. A way to be brought near. To be brought to the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. A way to be rescued from our own religious effort by which we somehow think we're going to earn favor with God. A way to be eternally right with the King of Kings. As the writer of Hebrews ends his book, he says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There is an invitation to you, sinner, in the torn curtain. You who are outside of the blessing and grace of of God, outside of peace with God. You who, right now in this moment, the Spirit of God presses upon you and says, you have a sin problem. And that sin problem is going to cost you eternity apart from God. God says to you through this torn veil, there is a way for you, been made for you by His Son. There's a, a rescue effort underway. There's a peace agreement on the table. And you must come to Christ. The only way into peace with God is through the torn flesh of his son. By believing that what he has accomplished is enough for your salvation. By confessing that you are a rebellious sinner in need of a savior. By turning from all other trusts and confidences to save yourself out of the pit of your own condemnation. And by looking to Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith and realizing that he is sufficient to save, that his sacrificed life and bloody death is enough to rescue you from your sins. Sinner, will today be the day of your salvation? Will right now be the moment? Do not wait another minute longer. For today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Look and live. But Christian, it's not just an invitation to those who don't yet know Christ. It's an invitation to you. As the writer of Hebrews says, this torn curtain points you to bearing the shame and reproach with our Savior. He suffered and died outside the camp. His flesh was torn to guarantee your entrance into the most holy place for all of eternity. Therefore, you can endure light momentary affliction in this life in his name. And so go to him and endure with him. And then he goes on to say, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This torn curtain is an invitation to you, brother and sister, to return in your love for our Lord. Not just to bear the shame and reproach with him of following him in this world, but also to know that you have no lasting city here and the best you can do is to live a life of sacrificial praise to God, doing good unto his name, sacrificing for him in all things. As God has so ordained this text for your heart tonight, I ask you, how does he press it upon your soul? What does this torn curtain call to your heart and how to respond? Will you come indeed to Christ? Would you pray with me? pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your glorious word which tells us exactly how it happened. We praise you that this is not a mythological account of what might have happened if your son did maybe come, but indeed this is historical fact of what actually took place through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you for validating his work through the splitting of this curtain with divine power. Thank you, Lord, for taking the initiative from heaven to earth to rescue us from our sin. As we gather now around this table, we pray that you would especially instruct our hearts, calling us to offer to you the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, which are pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for all you have accomplished in saving our soul. Would you be pleased and praised with how we respond in Jesus' name? Amen.